What's diagnosing my child's ear infections with a smartphone and thus setting the standard for the future of digital diagnostics? My name is Jeff, and together with my co-host Abdo, we host How It's Med, specifically MedTech Talks, a podcast series where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare. Today, our guest is Arna Ionescu Stoll, the CEO of Waverly Diagnostics, the previous founder and principal of Tridy, and so, so much more. So, Arna, I've got the hype train going for you. Now, can you tell us how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I started my career over 20 years ago at IDEO, which is a global design and innovation firm. And I uh, very quickly realized that I have a passion for healthcare. And, And not a lot of designers actually necessarily gravitated towards healthcare. There's a lot of constraints. Um, you know, a lot of things you can't do, um, a lot of ways you have to do things. And what I found is that I felt like those constraints actually pushed me to be more creative. And I, and I liked working within, within those constraints. And, 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 and I felt like the, the challenge and the creativity uh, was something that I, I, I gravitated towards. Um, so started in healthcare, design in healthcare early on. And I saw an opportunity at the time of companies that were starting to use technology to facilitate healthcare delivery. And so I started uh, working, uh, building a domain, as the language at IDEO was called Connected Health, that was about facilitating those companies. So that was a great experience. And I had the opportunity to really see a lot of the companies in the EMR space, the disease management space, and uh, really was able to um, to be a part of a lot of those early conversations, which which was great. So Career moves forward. I went in-house to a large digital health company that I uh, was at while it grew over to over a billion and a half in valuation um, and wow. then decided to um, start a consulting practice focused on very early stage companies. I realized very quickly that my passion is with early stage companies and really building something out of nothing and doing that, you know, that first creation that happens uh, in, in early stages. And mm-hmm. so... And so I uh, founded a consulting boutique consulting firm called, founded a boutique consulting firm called Triety that uh, basically uh, was working with early stage companies on anything from product to user experience to, to marketing. Um, and then from there, I got to know the founders, the academic founders of, of Waverly. It was Wave the, of, of the company that I'm currently the CEO of. Um, and I started working with them and supporting them kind of in a senior advisory role. And they, um, slowly kind of very organically, uh, brought me into the CEO role to, to, to run the company and take it forward. So they roped you in very slowly, kind of like a frog being boiled. Um, but, um, you, you mentioned before, uh, your, your story of how you were involved in a consultancy you must have seen a lot of healthcare startups come and go um, as you worked with them. I think that, you know, healthcare innovation is such a, it's such a, it's such a space with so many barriers. What were the main reasons for failures that you saw throughout your time consulting with different firms? Yeah. So I think there are kind of two categories, right? I think the first category is uh, people issues, uh, and I can talk a little bit more about that. And the second category is um, market issues, like really fit issues. 
Um, the first issue with with people issues is is the thing about healthcare is often this the kernel of a company is a very is a very technical uh, thing. It's 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 you know it's, it was developed by academics very often. You know it's coming out of universities that the kernel of that company, and it can be very hard uh, for academics to transition their baby, their kernel of an idea, their paper, their core technology to an operating team to take it forward. And I'd say that. I saw a pretty significant conflict, conflict that was significant enough to take a company more than once uh, between kind of academic founders uh, and the operating team that that was brought in. Um, because the way that you build a company and the way that you think about it and the way you move it forward is, and the way that you succeed is very different from the way that you succeed in an academic setting. It's a very different kind of person, a very different kind of team. And so I think, you know, often there's this conflict and this tension between um, founders and the people taking the company forward. You know, the founders may have an idea about doing it that's different from how the company's taking it forward. And and I've seen that tech, that that conflict tank a company and uh, basically make it insolvent. You know, the second issue is I think really product market fit. Like you have to you have to create a product that people really want to use that people really need and they may not even know they need it right but you can identify it. You've, you've found that they need it and um, a lot of that comes from the processes that people use uh, you know basically if you develop a technology in isolation in an office it's very unlikely that it's going to meet the needs of the people out in the world you have to have processes and techniques um, which is really my core background from IDEO human-centered design to um, to make sure that the product you're you're building is meeting the needs of people out out in the world. I'll just jump in here. Do you think that academics then would struggle with product market fit because that's not something that you're really taught? I think that's one of the big sources of conflicts that I saw, and it's not that academics by nature right struggle with it. It's just a different process. It's a different process to develop a technology and to come up with a core idea than it is to really figure out how to scale that idea and position it so that, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people can use it. It's not something that academics can't do. It's just not something that you have to do in order to succeed in academia. You're, you're, you're measured by different metrics in that, in that world. I want to bring it back then to the consulting job versus being a CEO. What was that transition like? You know, for me, it was a fairly seamless transition. Uh, it, it, it's nice in a career, I think, to bounce between consulting and being in-house because as a consultant, you get an incredible amount of breath and you get to address a large number of challenges and a large number of spaces. Spaces You see a lot. The downside of consulting is you don't have ownership. So you, you create a baby, you hand it over the line when the project is over and then you hope that that baby is nurtured and, and brought to fruition, but you have no control over it. On the flip side, the, the benefit of being in-house is you get depth. You focus really, really deeply on one thing and you have to address every single aspect of that thing in order to get it over that finish line, which as a consultant, you don't have to do. Consulting gives you that breadth of experience in order to really be able to go deep um, and get something over the finish line as, a, as, as an in-house operator. Uh, and I think there's a lot of value to bouncing back and forth. I've, in my career, I've bounced back and forth. Each job I've had has alternated, first consulting, then in-house, then consulting, now now in-house. And and I think that's that's just been really personally fulfilling for me because I've gotten both of those experiences. 
that's super fascinating. I, I think you've talked a lot of human-centered design overall. Um, in our pre-chat, when we, when we talked about a week previous, you mentioned how human-centered design and being able to see how people work with even a mock-up of your product is so important. Are there any stories in particular that stand out to you as to how far you took that obsession? I very much believe that you have to simulate anything that you're designing before you actually build it. Otherwise, you're wasting your time and you don't actually know what you're building. And I think you can take simulations very, very far. There's, I think, one project that perhaps you're thinking about that I worked on was for a surgical tool um, in my days at IDEO, and it was for spine surgery. And we we had all these ideas about how to actually support the totality of the operating room team. So you've got the you've got the um, the surgeon, you've got the sterile PA, you've got the non-sterile nurse. Uh, you potentially have the sales rep from the company as well. How do you build a tool that really supports all of these different people that are working together for the goal of surgery? And we had a lot of ideas about maybe each person has their own screen that's tailored to their role. Um, but these were ideas, right? And we didn't want to go too far down any idea until we actually saw how it worked in a real world context. And so in order to simulate the experience of surgery, we booked hotel suites at various orthopedic conferences where, you know, thousands of surgeons were attending. And so we'd show up and we would literally, over the course of a day, take all of the furniture out of the suite and shove it into the bathroom as well as we could. And then we would have, you know, loads of foam core and surgical equipment shipped to the hotel. And we would build out a mock operating room right then and there. And then we would have our prototypes running on screens that we would place. And surgeons would pretend to like do surgery with the mannequin that we had on the, on the gurney that we had shipped in. Um, and we would get feedback on our, on our designs. And it was incredibly powerful because a lot of the early assumptions that we had completely got debunked within a day, right? Which if we'd gone down the pathway of actually building them, that would have been a lot of wasted time and money and effort. So for example, we had, our initial hypothesis was that we would have tailored information displays for each team member based on what their role is. That very quickly obviously was not working. Um, we had to we had to have one display that supported all roles simultaneously. And that was because of communication. If people were looking at different things, it was making communication within the team a lot harder. And so that was a hypothesis that was wrong. It's, it was incredibly logical. It made a lot of sense, but it was totally wrong, right? And if we hadn't mocked it up, then we never, we never would, have, would have known that. And we learned that very, very early on, which, which was great. And, you know, so I think that that was a really... I think a seminal project for me. I think it was a great example that really kind of set the set the tone for my whole career of prototyping and working hand in hand in everything I've ever done with my end users. I mean, the, the downside of that was that I've probably been blacklisted from a number of hotels at this point for completely, you know, dismantling sweet furniture. But I'm okay with being on par with rock stars. You know, I don't have to trash a suite to get blacklisted. I can just turn it into an operating room. That's definitely a story to tell. I think um, one of the other, I guess, relevant questions there is just looking through your website and try it, it seems like you wrote a, an article before on how sometimes less is more sometimes in the OR when it comes to new innovative equipment. How do you balance that with this, uh, with the immersion that you have in the med tech space? Or how does that change your perspective in comparison to others who are doing the work that you do? I think 
the knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people have when they're developing a product is to basically throw the kitchen sink of features at the product. And what's really important is to figure out what people really need and figure out how to put it together in a way that actually works for people as opposed to kind of giving them the dire flexibility to set it up for themselves. Like as a designer, I think, and as a creator of a product, you have to have a point of view on how this product is going to be used. And I think at some point, you know, yes, a little bit of flexibility and customization works, but it's your job to really figure out the optimal way that people are going to use this and guide them towards using it that way. And I think a lot of that is also figuring out what they don't need. It's just as important to know what features people really don't need as it is to know the ones that they, that they do and, and to be really judicious and, and, and trim and really careful with what you actually do put into the final product because clutter doesn't help anyone. We've got enough cognitive load going on in our lives as it is without adding kind of more things that are really not necessary in our periphery. Something off that, what is the process of decluttering features? I think it's about really developing a point of view about how people are going to use your product for what purpose, and then really identifying what they actually need for that goal that, that they have. Um, and then a lot of the stuff in the periphery, get rid of it or bury it completely so that it doesn't, it doesn't pop up to the surface. You really have to have a strong framework and understanding of how and why people are using your products in order to design it well. Are there then any things that trip amateur designers when it comes to adding? Just out of curiosity for it. I mean, I think it's about trusting yourself. You have to, you have to build trust in your instinct as a designer and that takes time. Um, it, you know, it takes time to, to build that, that trust that if you, you take this out, it's going to be okay. Uh, and you know, that it's the right thing for, for my users. And I think what trips up amateur designers, you know, it's interesting. So with this, um, surgical tool that I was telling you about, it was incredibly hard to use before we put our hands on it. And there was definitely a group of surgeons that were really upset about the significant improvements we made to the product because they just spent years of their lives figuring out how to use it and learning how to use it. And so suddenly when we made it a lot easier and like everybody could use it, right? Like they were no longer um, special and they had to relearn it as well. So I think as an amateur designer, often you're very swayed by that. And I think it's really hard to face people who are unhappy with what you've done. But I think if you understand the core reason for why they may be unhappy, then I think that can help you kind of understand that you, you're doing the right thing. I think that ties back in really well with what we had spoken about about before with the academic versus commercial relationship overall. I mean, that's the relationship that exists right now with Waverly. How did that get started and how has that been successful so far? So Waverly, at the core technology of our first product was developed as a collaboration between um, a team in the computer science uh, engineering department um, at University of Washington and then pediatric otolaryngology team at the Seattle Children's Hospital, which is part of UW. Um, and they worked on the core technology and then the four of them, uh, incorporated the company and filed the patents and published the science translational medicine paper. Um, and then they, one of the, one of the four member, one of the four members of the team, he knew me through some other work that I was doing with a, with another company and asked me to come in and, and talk with the team. And I think they realized that there was kind of a, a gap and, and kind of a business gap in essence, uh, in terms of going from a, a technology 
uh, to an actual business. Uh, and so, you know, I think um, one of the things that I've been very conscious of is making sure that I have a very strong relationship with the four academic founders. Since again, I was a consultant for a long time. So I know that feeling of, you know, making a baby and then handing it over, over the fence. Um, and in this case, you know, there's a very different skill set in the people that we're hiring at, at Waverly to, uh, to basically turn this into a company and a platform and a viable business, um, than kind of the skill set that was required to actually develop the initial technology in the first place. Right. And so I think there's a deep understanding and I think, you know, because we have a strong relationship, we've been able to, um, have a lot of mutual respect and kind of everybody's kind of letting go when they need to, to let go in order to let things get as big as they could get. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Met. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.